0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Eating
2: Tools, unique handmade cooking tools. For more information, visit eatingtools.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, nizakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a so mystery for many people, and I try to demystify this program with my cook guests. My guest today is Whit Johnson, who is the co-founder of Ryzen Spirits, based in Atlanta, Georgia. Whit founded Wizen Spirits in April 2021 to produce very unique products that blends Japanese tradition and American terroir. More specifically, he chose to use Japanese koji mold, which is a foundation, foundational ingredient of Japanese cuisine, to produce his spirits instead of malts that are used for whiskies. Also, Witt uses Carolina gold rice, which reflects the rich history of American South agriculture, and it is very exciting to see the two cultures are beautifully merged in his products. So today we'll discuss how Witt got into the spirit industry after his successful career in an entire different industry, the difference between koji and the malt-based fermentation, and how a traditional Southern American rice naturally merges with Japanese traditional koji and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Whit Johnson. Hello, Whit. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Kiko, how are you? I appreciate you having me on today.
2: Yeah, this is very exciting. So to get to know you first, uh, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up?
1: Uh, So I'm originally from South Carolina. I spent kind of the first part of my childhood in Charleston and then kind of my latter years in Columbia, uh, the state capital. Um, and as far as what did I eat, uh, I would say that most, uh, most weekdays, so breakfast and lunch, uh, was pretty standard fare, right? Cereals and school lunches and whatnot. But, um, I came from a a fairly traditional family that, um, you know, and some evenings, uh, but certainly on the weekends, um, we would do large meals, um, that really came from my father's side of the family and for my my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. And um a lot of what we ate was local. Um a lot of local fruits and vegetables. So um strawberries, watermelon, you know, seasonal black-eyed peas, uh, local cucumbers, onions, that kind of thing. Um, and then a lot of, you know, barbecued meats. We would do, you know, um, grilled Boston butts, uh, lots of chicken, stuff like that. But for the most part, I mean, it was fairly seasonal um, and a lot of local stuff that, that you know, you could pick up at roadside stands really on the highway.
2: Mm, wow. You say it very uh, smoothly, but it sounds like a dream diet from the South.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was certainly a Southern diet, right? I mean, there were a lot of things that were, that were fried and a lot of oils used. Um, it kind of kept us going. It was a lot of calories. But um, yeah, I mean, it it was, you know, looking back, um, you realize how much like time and work and preparation went into it and um, they were great meals. I mean, I I wish I could say that I still ate those same meals, but um, you know, those were meals that looking back at my mother and father putting that stuff together, I mean, they were meals that sometimes took an hour or two to put together.
2: Mm, Right. Okay, well, hopefully somebody is going to continue doing that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and then you founded uh, Horizon Spirits to produce your own spirits in 2021. So, and but used to be in very different industries. So, what was your background before that, and uh, how did you get into the spirit production business?
1: Yeah, so I lived in Atlanta for about the last 12 years. Um, I was in real estate, and more specifically, I was in real estate development, uh, building apartment buildings. Um, And really, the genesis of all this stuff started back in 2014. I had read an article, uh, some kind of a generic business news article. It might have been a Bloomberg article or something like that, but it was talking about... um, Diageo and Diageo puts out these annual statistics and it was speaking specifically about the world's most consumed alcohol, uh, alcoholic beverage. And it was Baijiu, uh, Chinese Baijiu. And I had never heard anything about Baijiu. I didn't even know what it was or that it existed. And so I read more about it. And, you know, it, it kind of makes sense when you look at the amount of people that live in China. Um, and, you know, it was what was interesting to me was that it's it's made from a variety of different things. It's some of it's made from rice, but a lot of it's made from sorghum. Um, but being from South Carolina, I knew about Carolina Gold Rice, and I you know it kind of got my you know internal gears going, and I thought you know it would be interesting if there was a way to make a distilled spirit out of rice because South Carolina uh, South Carolinians are almost like sec- uh, second to Texas. In terms of like the love for their state. Um, And I felt like, you know, if you could deliver a spirit made from rice, South Carolinians would probably love it. And so I I did a deeper dive into Baijiu. I don't think Baijiu translates very well to a Western audience. Um, It's a very high ABV. um, And it's definitely something that you kind of have to get acquired to. But in my searches, I, I came across Japanese shochu. And Japanese shochu, especially Honkaku uh, Japanese shochu, seems more refined. Um, The taste profiles were exquisite. You know, I started to purchase some sample bottles and really got into it. Um, And you looked at the history of it, you know, really going back several thousand years for sake and then, you know, going back five to six hundred years for the production of shochu. Um, And it was really interesting. And so. You know, it kind of like somebody who gets into beer, you go out and you buy the kit, you kind of like start to figure out how to make it. Well, I did something similar, but um, they don't really make shochu kits. So there was a lot more reading involved. I mean, I had a handful of books that I purchased on, you know, how to make sake because the process for fermenting um, or fermentation and growing koji mold is very similar. So I kind of learned almost how to make sake before I learned how to make shochu but I kind of pieced all these things together and kind of like figured out how to make it. Um, and I really, I, I put it down for several years and didn't do much with it. I, you know, I, I made a few sample batches and people enjoyed it and friends and family and whatnot. But, um, it really wasn't until about, gosh, maybe five, six years later that I had a, a buddy of mine come along and we were exchanging ideas. And I told him about this concept that I had, And he said, you should really take that further. And I said, you know, I'm just kind of busy with life in general and career and all that stuff. And I said, if you would like to join in, by all means, I'd love to have you to help out. So he came on board and we really got into it in a big way. I mean, we started reaching out to the Clemson University uh, Coastal Extension um, and speaking to people in their agricultural department. And, you know, we, you know, started reaching out to people in Stuttgart at the University of Arkansas and their agricultural departments to really do a deep dive into rices. And, um, you know, from there, just kind of built it out and really understood chemically how rice works. And you know, how yeast works and how these fermentations work and how, you know, all of it comes together. And so from there, we just kind of started to build the concept and build the business.
2: Mm, Interesting. Well, for listeners who are familiar with shochu, shochu is, uh, you know, only around 25% alcohol level versus 40%, 45% of like whiskey or harder spirits. And the sake... Mm -hmm. Uh, is 17, 15, 17, and wine's probably around like 12 to 13. So um it's a hit hit the middle. And the you in that sense, uh, you know, baiju probably is like very, very <laughs> um, Yeah, it's like 65, <laughs> it's way up there. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's amazing, man. Right? You just take like a piece of article, brought you to this whole different world. And uh, I really admire your take action like that. It's just a fascinating how you switched your life entirely to something very very creative like that so yeah yeah. and uh so before we dive into a conversation about your unique very unique spirits i stress uh, i'd like to talk about the definition of your products because you're so thoughtful about that so Mm -hmm. um so according to the japanese tax regulations i looked up and the premium shochu is defined as spirits distilled by a pot still. And alcohol level of the final product is under 45 degrees. Or if it's distilled by a continuous still, the alcohol level must be under 36 degrees. Also, in both cases, it does not fall into the categories of whiskey, brandy, vodka, rum, and gin. So this is a very really tricky part of Japanese regulation. doesn't fall into whiskey, which is... Very tricky. So that's another whole, another world of discussion. Right, right. Right. But um, so all of your products are made from your simple, four simple ingredients, rice, spring water, yeast, and black koji, and distilled by a pot still. and alcohol level um, is 40%. So that means you easily qualify for premium shochu, but you decided to call it your products as American rice koji spirits. So why is that? Why did you... Decide to call yeah. it
1: um One, it was not an easy decision. Uh, we went back and forth about this a lot, um, and definitely wanted to honor the people that have been making this, you know, for the last five hundred years. Um, we certainly don't want to come off as a company that you know tries to pretend like we've created something new or a new category uh, category because we certainly haven't. Um, but it was several things, uh, really to what you were saying about, you know, four simple ingredients, it's, you know, we are a Honkaku sochu for all intents and purposes. Uh, we only use those four ingredients, rice, water, uh, koji and yeast. Um, but we, we kind of blend the processes a little bit. Um, and for anyone who, you know, knows a lot about how awamori is made, which is kind of a close cousin of sochu. Or, how uh, Honkaku Sochu is made, we kind of take a little bit, you know, pieces of each one of those. Um, and so, for one, you know, the biggest difference is we're not using Japanese grains of rice like Yamanashiki or Omachi. Um, that was kind of a big differentiator for us. But with Awamori, um, they use long grain rice and black koji. We're not using a long grain rice, but we do use black koji. Um, and whereas awamori is made using just one single shikomi, so just one single fermentation, uh, we do a, a double shikomi process, which is more similar to traditional Japanese shochus. So we have a, a starter fermentation, which we later add more water and rice to to, to make the fermentation bigger. Um, and so for those reasons, we just felt like, you know what, there's a lot of things here that, you know, definitely fit within the category, um, and certainly fit within the processes of how you make it. I mean, it's a single pot distillation, um, you know, with, with whiskeys and vodkas and gins and all that stuff, typically you have more distillation run. So we're certainly more aligned with traditional Japanese shochu in that sense as well. But, um, just after having the conversations internally about, you know, is it appropriate to call this stuff a Japanese shochu if we're using different types of rices? It's not located within the boundaries of, you know, the country of Japan. We're really doing a only a single shikomi when traditional shochu is a, a double shikomi. And we're also using black koji, whereas more traditional sh- uh, shochus use a, a, a yellow koji. We just felt like all of those things combined. Um, for the layperson, they probably wouldn't notice, but we could just see ourselves getting grilled by the, uh, the more stringent soju enthusiasts. So we made the decision to call it an American rice koji spirit. But, um, you know, one other thing that kind of goes along with that is that, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, to target a broader American audience, um, you know, and especially in our region of the country in the southeast, I mean, you know the vast majority of people are familiar with sake, but I'd say that you know even uh, you know within the sake category, um, people aren't necessarily overly informed about how it's made or the different varietals. Um, and there's not as nearly as many people that are familiar with Sochu as a category. And so, we see ourselves somewhat as a bridge. I mean, we're definitely proponents for Sochu and for all things Koji. Um, but, you know, we're we're trying to bring more people kind of to our side. And we felt like by doing it as a a kind of a, a broader marketing exercise that um, we could get, you know, get in front of a lot more people.
2: Mm, totally makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. So, for listeners, I not familiar with Sochu. Um, I mean, Sochu basically uh, because of... the nature of koji koji have mainly uh, three different types of koji mold uh white yellow and black and black uh can very suitable is suitable for uh hotter temperature so it's often Mm -hmm. used for shochu making and which you use but then also amori is um more influenced it's okinawan um type of spirits that's similar to shochu but they use Mm -hmm. specific uh long grain rice and also um This production is a little different. We have another episode for that. So it really technically makes sense, right? Because what do you do is not pure shochu, but also you don't want to pigeonhole it in something that was a piece of this, piece of that. And uh, yeah, it totally makes sense. And we discuss the flavor of your spirits later, but it totally makes sense. You don't want to call it shochu or something like, you know, like something you try to be in the category. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And we tried, I'll, I'll add to that, I mean, we tried to get a lot of people's opinions on that, too. I mean, even our our distributor here in Georgia, um, there's a, a Japanese-American that we work closely with, and he comes from a sake brewing co- uh, family in Japan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had this conversation, just said, you know, we don't think that it's necessarily right that we call ourselves a sochu. And you know, we've we've had those conversations with a handful of different people, and we've had a you know a variety of different opinions. But ultimately, we you know we feel like we took the right direction.
2: Mm, right, and then koji started being known as Japanese ingredient. But nowadays, koji can be applied to many other uh, contexts by chefs and beverage producers. So this is an mm-hmm. exciting step, one step outside again, outside of Japanese context. So. Yeah, this is very exciting to me personally. Um, Yeah,
1: well, and I'll add to that real quick. I mean, the the rice leaves that are left over. um, You know, we have a little bit of stuff that just gets, you know, the residual that's left behind before it goes into the still. We've sold that stuff now to restaurants and we've had chefs come and pick that stuff up. And I mean, we've had people make cod dishes with it. I think somebody made a salmon dish out of it uh, about two weeks ago. Um, so to your point about that side, I mean, it, it's not just alcohol. I mean, we're getting people involved in more on the food, uh, and cuisine side of it as well.
2: Right. Yeah. Sake kasu. Right. <laughs> That's a uh, treasure. So, and let's talk about another ingredient of your spirit, which is very important. You mentioned, so you, uh, you source all of your, uh, no, you, you source, uh, your rice from. Uh, family-owned farms across the Southeast, I heard. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned the Carolina gold rice um, has a beautiful history. And I maybe you can talk about the history and how it was first planted in the American South.
1: Yeah. Um, so the origins of Carolina gold rice are, I wouldn't say completely unknown, but it goes back to the 1600s. Um, it came here on a ship from a sailor, um, that was coming from the African coast. And I believe his ship was actually shipwrecked off the coast of South Carolina. And in exchange for some work done to his ship, he gave the, uh, the, uh, I guess the local shipbuilders some Carolina gold rice, and that eventually made its way to some farmers and it started to take off in South Carolina. Um, but back then, I mean, it was really just you know, one of the colonies. Um, I'm not even sure if they had made the differentiation between South and North Carolina at that point. But, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, for the most part, the Carolina gold rice kind of has a little bit of a sordid past because it was one of the original cash crops, um, which was grown by slave labor. Um, and so kind of fast forward to the Civil War and following the Civil War, the South really went into just a huge economic depression. And Carolina gold rice production basically stopped um, almost completely. Um, it went on for probably the following one or two decades, but then just fell out. I mean, totally. I mean, rice production started to move out to the Midwest into to the Louisiana and Mississippi and, and largely in Arkansas. And rice continued to move out even further west. It eventually made its way out to California to the Sacramento Valley. And so Carolina gold rice, I mean, it was largely lost um i think they actually thought that it went extinct for a long time and then a doctor an optometrist out of savannah georgia uh came across it at i believe it was in a seed bank at the university of texas and he was able to source um some of the seeds from that seed bank and started to plant it at his farm and eventually grew enough to make it commercially viable and really kind of started, you know, what is now the resurgence of Carolina gold rice. Mm. Um, I heard it's so,
2: in the 80s, like pretty th- recent,
1: right? That's that's right. It, it was back in the 1980s. I mean, really, he was doing it to feed ducks. I mean, he was a um, a hunter and was doing it because Carolina gold rice grows very well in nasty, wet, muddy conditions. And I think it was kind of an afterthought that he would actually be able to grow it commercially. Um, I may be, you know, long on that point, but it took off and I think people took notice. And so you started to get the attention of mills and restaurants. Um, and all of a sudden there's this resurgence of Carolina gold rice. And so now, I mean, you can see it throughout South Carolina, North Carolina and Georgia. Um, you see it in a lot of, you know, chef driven restaurants and nice grocery stores and stuff like that. And so it has certainly come back. Um, I will say, though, you know, you can find it if anybody wanted to to try it out or order some to to use in a meal. You can find it for um, on retail websites like White House Farms, Ransom Mills has it for purchase. Um, But, you know, it's it's grown in, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds throughout the area, as opposed to rice that's grown by the millions, if not tens of millions of pounds in the Midwest um, and on the West Coast. So it's certainly prevalent in this area, um, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, it, it's still small scale to, you know, compared to some of the larger crops that are out
2: mm, there. Right. And then how do you compare the Carolina gold rice with Japanese rice that is typically used to make traditional shochu?
1: Yeah, and so this is interesting, and this is kind of a, a, a point worth noting. Um, Carolina Gold Rice, you know, we along with a handful of other rices, um, we did chemical profiles to figure out which American grains of rice were best suited um, for our purposes, and so we compared them to Japanese grains of rice, and we looked at, you know, one was commercial viability, but you know, other things like starch content um amylose content to see you know what the yield would be like and we found that you know carolina gold rice and some others were actually very very similar to japanese strains of rice that they had high starch and high amylose content and therefore they'd be very good for making alcohol um one thing that we found with carolina gold rice is that there's a a the characteristic is called chalkiness. Um, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but essentially it is not a very hard grain of rice. So Yamato Nishiki and Omachi, those are are, or Yamachi, uh, excuse me, Omachi are very hard grains of rice and therefore they polish and they mill very well. Uh, Carolina gold rice does not mill very well. Um, It breaks, I mean, the yield, if you have... 10,000 pounds of Carolina gold rice in the field, I think you're lucky to probably get 50 to 60 percent of that that ultimately gets uh, bagged and, and out for sale. Um, it just cracks and so it's very hard to mill. It's very hard to polish. Um, it's got a lot of other good characteristics going for it. but for that reason, you know we've, we've kind of had to figure out ways to work with it and you know this is something we were talking about offline. The Carolina gold rice that we're using today, and we actually use a a more aromatic subspecies of of Carolina gold rice that's called Charleston gold rice, Um, but we use Charleston gold rice in the oak barrel aged lines that we have now. Um, the, The clear spirit that we have out on the market at present is made from a table rice that comes out of Arkansas. And it, it shares a lot of the same qualities, you know, a lot of the same chemical properties um, that it does with Carolina and Charleston gold rice. But, you know, when we stepped back and we looked at, you know, what are the volumes that we would like to do one day? And, you know, how do we work with this rice and, and really the cost of the rice? I mean, when you look at the yield that comes out of the, these farms and then you look at, you know, what's lost to the, the milling process, it makes for very expensive grain as well. And so, you know, with all of those factors taken into account, you know, we use this, this table rice um, to make our clear spirit, um, but then we do use Charleston gold rice in the, uh, the barrel age product that we have, which is underway right now. We've got a line called Southern Blend, which we're, we're hoping to be able to release later this year, depending on hitting the flavor profile that we're trying to achieve.
2: Right. But uh, I have to stress that uh, the Carolina Gold Rice is the inspiration, right? Uh, in the first place, without that rice, probably you didn't start this business. So, it-
1: yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's one of those things like it certainly was the inspiration. Um, you know, it, I knew about Carolina Gold Rice, and that's kind of why I got into the, the, the whole concept. It just, you know, as you get further into it, you learn things about it. And not that it's a bad rice. I mean, you know, we certainly enjoy it. and We, we like the, fa- the flavor profiles that come from it. Um, it's a very interesting rice. Um, again, it's just, you know, when you step back and you look at how difficult it can be to work with, and then you look at the, you know, the impact of price. I mean, uh, on a per pound basis, it can be 8x. I
2: smell science of developing new crop that's going to be easy to mill. <laughs> mm-hmm. coming out yeah. of my goals, so maybe you could be a part of that project too we'll see yeah <laughs> all, right. all right so we'll take a quick break here and when we come back we'll discuss what the terroir of georgia and japanese native mold create together so please stay with us Eating Tools was born to showcase the artists, metalsmiths, woodworkers, and craftspeople behind the endless interpretations of the ancient tools that feed us. The curated collection of unique and extraordinary handmade culinary utensils you'll find at Eating Tools, along with a hand-picked selection of top-quality production-made pieces, presents a catalogue of products never before assembled in one place. Food, cooking, craftsmanship, and art are their ingredients. For more information, visit eatingtools.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, and my guest today is wheat Johnson, who is the co-founder of Hwaizun Spirits, based in Atlanta, Georgia. wheat founded in Wisem Spirits in April 2021 to produce very unique products that blend Japanese, Tradition and American terroir. So uh, so there's a big difference between your spirits and other American spirits, such as bourbon and white whiskey, regarding the fermentation process. So, um, and you use koji mold, as we discussed earlier, uh, which is a key component of Japanese fermented products, uh, including shochu, sake, soy sauce, and miso, um, whatever, it's del- it's delicious in Japanese cuisine, whereas American spirits are made with molds. So could you tell us a technical difference between Yokozumo based fermentation and the malt based fermentation?
1: Yeah, so I would say this is probably one of the largest differentiators between, I mean, really Western based spirits, and you can throw, you know, all things whiskey in there, bourbons, whiskeys, scotches, uh, gins, vodka, anything like that, um, which uses malted grains versus sochu, which uses koji as the sacrification agent, which really does the same thing. And so, um, and even beer, I mean, I'd say scotch and whiskey and bourbon, all those things, but even beer uses malted grains. Um, and essentially when you malt a grain, what you're doing is you're, to, to put it simply, you're tricking the grain into thinking that it's going to grow. And so all of the starches that are in the seed Um, the seed starts to release enzymes and those enzymes start to break down the complex starches into simple sugars, which become food for the yeast to eat. And the yeast produces CO2 and alcohol. Um, well, when you use rice, you know, specifically the rices that are used for sake and shochu, those are polished rices. So the bran and the husk has been removed. And in that bran and in that husk, uh, that's where the enzymes are located to break down the starches. So without those enzymes, you have to find another way to break those things down. And that's when you introduce the koji mold. And so the koji mold does the same thing as malting. It, it breaks down the starches into simple sugars, um, in order to create food for the yeast. Um, and each one, you know, each process has its own flavor profiles that come with it.
2: Okay. So, and, uh... Also so you could have made rice-based spirits like whiskey uh using most, mm-hmm. but you chose koji-based products so why is that
1: Yeah um rice for one uh it does not malt well I mean I can just tell you that from experience that I've had with you know even through our own endeavors talking to other people that have tried to use rice um it doesn't malt, malt like other grains like barley does um or like rye and so Some people actually have to add enzymes into the fermentation in order to break down rice. So for those purposes alone, koji is the better way to go if you're looking to to break down the starches um, into sugar. But the other thing is, is the the flavor profiles that we feel we get from using koji are tremendous and and specifically using black koji. um, Black koji is great for us because, one, it produces a lot of citric acid. And in a warm environment, that helps to keep any kind of bacterial infections or bacterial growth uh, in your fermentations down. But, you know, it also creates this, you know, really unique fruitiness and this tropical flavor profile that, um, you know, you really pick up in the fermentations. And ever since we got into this endeavor, it's interesting to, to smell and to taste what something is like when it's, you know, in a fermentation versus what the distillate taste like because you can really pick out you know those subtleties um, in the distillate that really come out very strong in the fermentation.
2: Mm, interesting. And how well does your koji grow in Georgia's climate?
1: Yeah, so um, well, I'll say that. I mean the simple answer is that Koji needs a lot of heat um, and it needs a, a very particular amount of humidity in order to grow. Um, it, you know, it needs to be in the, in the range of like 95 to hundred degrees really to, to, to have good growth. Um, and you need to be able to wick water off it very quickly, um, in order to prohibit any kind of other, you know, mold or any kind of other bacterial growth from taking over. So the heat is good in that respect. Um, the humidity is a little bit tougher to deal with because even though you're, you're steaming the rice and you want it to take on a certain, uh, a certain amount of water, you need to be able to pull that water off pretty quickly. Um, so we've kind of got a, a special environment where we can do both of those things. But the flip side is that, um, the yeast wants it to be fairly cool. So we use sake yeast and sake is kind of like on the opposite end of the spectrum, Um, that koji is whereas koji likes a lot of heat uh, the yeast likes it to be pretty cool so our fermentation stays somewhere between call it 55 to 65 degrees Um, so we've got to keep those a little bit cooler but the the tough part about being in Georgia is that there are some pretty wild temperature swings Um, today I want to say it's in the mid 50s but just several days ago there was you know an inch or two of snow on the ground um, summers in Georgia can be in the triple digits and feel like they're in the quadruple digits with the humidity. I mean, it just gets extremely hot. But again, I mean, in the winter in Georgia, you can have it drop down in the teens and you can have a lot of snow. So there are some really good months um, for both fermentations and for both koji growth. Those tend to be the milder months. Um, but you know, you kind of got to step in and do a little bit of control in the really hot months and the really cold months because it almost gets uh, to, ex- to extremes in those months.
2: Mm, wow. That's uh, tricky, but exciting challenges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. um, and how's the water quality at Twizen? Uh, is it good for making premium spirits?
1: Yeah. So we work um, specifically with a um, spring water company out of central Georgia um, called Callaway. It's a, another family-owned business. Um, they have a, a land conservation easement that is, surrounds their spring in central Georgia. Um, and it comes from a very deep quartzite mine. And so for that reason, I mean, you know, you talk to any kind of shochu uh, producer and even more so with the sake producers. I mean, they, they'll really stress, you know, the importance of water quality. And for those reasons, you know, we, we partnered with Callaway and we've been working with them over the last like year or two. Um, to put their water in our fermentations. But one kind of, you know, an important thing to note is that when it comes to dilution of the spirit, right? I mean, our, the final ABV of our distillations is usually in the range of kind of about 50 to 50% plus ABV. And so that has to be diluted back to 40%. Um, we do not use spring water for those dilutions because any kind of minerality or any kind of elements that are in the, the water when it comes to dilution, Will create kind of a cloudiness but again i mean the really the the importance is when you know the fermentation when you've got the the yeast consuming the sugars and when you've got the koji really taking off i mean that's when you want to use that mineral water and so we feel like it makes a tremendous impact Mm,
2: right yeah i i think your spirit has a lot of complexity probably Mm -hmm. because of what elements and uh so now how do you describe the style of your spirits uh what do the terroir of Georgia and Japanese native koji mold create together Mm -hmm. in the environment?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, as far as the style goes, I mean, we intentionally made our spirit 40% ABV. Um, You know, more traditional shochis are, like you said, I mean, kind of in that 25% ABV plus or minus range. Um, we did that again, just kind of trying to, to, to target our customer base to make it a little bit more familiar. So it's closer to, to a vodka, you know, it's probably a little less than what a, a typical gin is, but it fits more in line with categories that people are familiar with. Um, but you know, as far as the taste and the profile goes, it's really interesting. Um, it's a single distillation and for, you know, anybody that may be unaware of, you know, what that means, you know, when you make a rum or a whiskey or a bourbon, I mean, they do multiple distillations. And in terms of like a vodka, I mean, a vodka, if you're using column still can have eight to 10 plates where you're essentially doing eight to 10 distillations. And so you're really removing the flavor profile of that underlying grain. Um, With us, I mean, we just get that one pass doing a single distillation. So we've got to make sure that we do a really good job making our cuts um, to get, you know, the best hearts, but, you know, you get this unique spirit where it captures kind of the graininess and the nuttiness of the the underlying rice, but there's also that subtle sweetness that's there from the breakdown of the starches into the sugars. And then again, I mean, a lot of the flavor comes from using that black koji. You, you get these kind of, you know, tropical fruity profiles. And so you get this drink that, um, Now it's extremely smooth. I'll say that. I mean, and I can say that with a very straight face that we've given this to a lot of people. And the one comment that we receive over and over again, is just how smooth the spirit is. Um, But to your point, I mean, you get this great complexity of these, you know, these undertones of the base grain, but you get the subtle sweetness and then all these kind of like tropical and fruitiness that go with it. So it's, it's, it's very interesting.
2: Mm, right so now let's talk about your actual products then so you have uh two products that are very different from each other and one is um harvest select and that is currently available and the other one is southern blend which is going to be available there this year you said so um could you tell us the theme of each product and uh, their flavor profiles
1: Right. So the, the flavor profile that I was just kind of talking about was our Horizon Harvest Select. And so that's our clear spirit. It's 40% ABV. And like I said, it's, it's made to kind of fall in line with more um, recognizable uh, clear spirit categories like a vodka or a gin. Um, the, the Southern Blend, we that is our product line that is a combination of both the rices we use in um, Harvest Select, as well as Charleston Gold Rice. And so, you know, we intentionally used Charleston Gold Rice because it's even more aromatic than Carolina Gold Rice. And so you get a lot of those, you know, very uh, interesting kind of underlying elements from the, the base grain. But, you know, at the same time, it's, it's barrel aged and we're only letting it sit for about 12 months or so. I mean, we'll see what the final times turn out to be once we decide to, to pull that product out of the barrel. We're hoping that's going to be about mid-year of this year. But, um, you know, it, it shares some more characteristics with a traditional whiskey. I mean, it's, it's, it's barrel-aged, so you're going to get kind of those oaky flavors. But, you know, we're using number four charred barrels, so, you're, you know, you're getting a, a, a good um, correspondence kind of back and forth going through the, uh, the char of the inside of the barrel. And you get some of those spicy notes, and, and I'd add to that that, you know, it almost helps to kind of preserve and bring out even more some of the subtle sweetness. You know, you get these kind of like uh, maple undertones that come out of the stuff that's barrel aged. Um, So there, there's certainly some similarities that they share, but there's also some big differences. Mm. So, you know, whereas the clear spirit, I mean, it's going to be more for those people that are, you know, vodka and gin drinkers, whereas our, our, barrel-age spirit is going to be more aligned with those people that like to have a whiskey or a bourbon.
2: Mm. I'm just curious. So number four, chard barrel. So is it uh, a kind of similar to bourbon barrels, how it's charred?
1: Yeah, so it's very similar. In fact, uh, we're using new American oak barrels. So they, you know, they haven't been used for anything else. It's not like these barrels have been used for whiskey, and then we're reusing them. They haven't been used for wine or anything like that. Or, and then we're reusing them. These are new oak barrels. And, you know, as far as the char goes, it's on a scale of one to five. You know, if, if you use a, a number one barrel, it's a, it's a, a light kind of toastiness. And when you do that, you get a lot more of the kind of the tannins and the, the, the taste of the oak. Whereas if you go all the way up to a five, I mean, it, there's a heavy char to the barrel. You're getting a lot more of those spicy notes um, and a lot more filtration through the, the, the char that's on the inside.
2: Mm-hmm. I, okay. And by the way, um, I tasted the harvest select. And here are some mm-hmm. words I, it came out of my, my mouth or mind. Mm-hmm. So the, the nose is camel. And sage and lemongrass, and I over time it toast it became a toasted walnuts, and that was exciting. and then taste was like milk chocolate and coconuts, mm-hmm. coconut and custard over time. Mm-hmm. so I never tasted anything like this um, when I had <laughs> any specific shochu or gin or vodka independently, so
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think this is a new category, I think,
1: yeah. I mean, again, kind of to your point. I mean, it's you know, it's something different. I mean, it, traditional shochus, um, a lot of them are vacuum distilled, and so they're very light, they're very airy, um, and there's a lot of subtle sweetness to them. You know, doing an atmospheric distillation like we do, it makes them a little bit bolder. So I, I think if you're going to go out there and try a traditional rice kome Sochu, you're going to kind of pick up on those differences. But at the same time, it, it's going to be very different than a vodka? Mm. You know, I always caution people when I, you know, they see that we make a clear spirit and they see that it's 40% ABV and they say, well, is it essentially like a vodka? Can you use it like a vodka? And the answer is yes, in some regards, but it's not a vodka. Um, I I think that it, it mixes well with a lot of, you know, different cocktail recipes, But, you know, because it does have this flavor profile, it doesn't work in every single thing that vodka does, right? Because vodka, for all intents and purposes, is just a neutral spirit. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's been intentionally made. It's been intentionally distilled numerous times and carbon filtered, you know, with the purpose of basically removing all of the flavor of the underlying grain. Right, so distinctively,
2: more notes, more taste flavor elements that hit your nose That's and right. your tongue. So yeah, you can't mm-hmm. use that. Like vodka It's too, too precious to do that. What a complexity, right, right. but I, I had it. Um, you'll have a sex on the rocks, but what's the best way to taste your products other than, you know, on the rocks.
1: Yeah. Uh, when we're out there talking with people and meeting with people, um, I'm always kind of curious to know, well, it's like, well, what kind of drinker are you? Um, We always recommend, I mean, if if you're the kind of person that likes to sip a drink, um, if you're the kind of person that likes to, you know, have a a whiskey neat or have a whiskey um, with a cube of ice or something like that, we recommend the same thing. And just because of the underlying flavor profile and the palate of our spirit, you know, if you're the kind of person that enjoys a drink like that, we recommend it. Um, That's a great way to kind of understand and taste, you know, the essence of the spirit. Um, you know, if you don't like it at room temperature, neat, um, we recommend putting in, you know, a cube of ice or maybe a splash of cold water just to kind of open it up a little bit, you know, that'll enhance the nose as well. Um, but you know, for people that are more into cocktails and want to mix it up a little bit, I mean, it does well with any kind of fruit juices, um, does well with sours. I mean, it, it goes well in a lot of different things. Um, I can say that it's, it's not one that lends well to anything that's briny. Um, I've tried personally, you know, to put it in a, a bloody Mary that's got a heavy vinegar brine or something like that. And I can tell you just, it clashes with stuff that's salty. Um, but outside of that, I mean, it's, you know, and I would encourage anyone, I mean, if you're looking for recipes or, you know, ways to pair it with other things, certainly go to our website or look at our Instagram page because we've got, Cocktail recipes um, that came through, uh, or came to us through some of our early partners, but you know, with the restaurants and the bars that we're working with now, I mean, you know, whenever they're willing to share with us their cocktail recipes, we'll throw them on there. So there's a plethora of stuff to take a look at on there as well.
2: Okay, that's awesome. I will take a look. And uh, so, when is the Southern Blend going to be available? That like you have like big plans, sounds like. But do you have any specific, like fall or late? later this year? yeah,
1: um, This middle of this summer, it uh, will have sat for about a year. Um, I, I think the intention is just to take it out around that time. But really, it just depends on what the flavor profile is like. I mean, we, we crack those barrels open from time to time to do samples and tastings and kind of see where they are. Um, and it's certainly changing over time. But what we don't want to do is take something out that we feel like, you know, needs to sit in there a little bit longer if we're going to get a fl- a better flavor profile out of it. And so, you know, the summertime is going to be very different, you know, with warmer temperatures, it's going to move the, um, the distillate around in those barrels a good bit more. Um, it's going to be going in and out of the charcoal. So you're going to get a little bit better filtration. So it just, it depends. I mean, I'll say that middle of this year is the target, but um, again, we're not, in any kind of rush to go out and release something that we don't feel confidently about.
2: Right. Mm. So that's a live creature. So you can't tell. Uh, <laughs> that's like. right. And, uh, but currently uh, where can we find your uh, harvest select?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately right now we're only in Georgia. Um, we're predominantly in Atlanta, but we're also in Savannah. Um, we're working on, some distribution options in the Carolinas as well, but um, we're also working on a, a DTC or a direct to consumer option uh, as we speak. Um, I'm hoping that we have that ready in the next couple of weeks. Um, and if you know if there's anybody out there that certainly wants to try a bottle, um, I'd say you know go and follow us on Instagram because we we post updates periodically, and that's certainly one thing that uh, we're putting you know out there for people so once we have that as an option we'll definitely put it out there for everyone to see and uh you know have one shipped directly to your door
2: mm, right and then whoever got lucky to be able to taste your products what they say about your products
1: yeah um you know it's it's a lot of the same stuff that we've been talking about um it's you know it's it's different. It's interesting. Um, love this, the the sweet profiles of it. Love how smooth it is. But I'll say this: I mean, ninety-five probably percent of our accounts right now. I, I take that back. Seventy-five percent of our accounts are on-premise, so bars and restaurants, and about ninety-five percent of those accounts, we're on the cocktail menu. And I can tell you, just working with the bartenders and the mixologists, and you know, my partner getting out there and talking with all of these people. I mean, people have really enjoyed kind of having a new base to play with. You know, I mean, it's 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 a completely different category for somebody to get out there and start playing around with. And so, we've had a lot of people get excited about it. Mm. Um, you know, we've got some restaurants that just you know they've kept us on the cocktail menu literally for months. I mean, we've got one restaurant in particular that I think we've probably been on their cocktail menu for about four months. Um, and just you know, they're constantly coming up with new cocktail recipes and. They've just enjoyed having it on there and, you know, they, they love the cu- uh, customer feedback that they're getting as well.
2: Mm, right. If I were a bartender, I would be excited because there's so many multiple um, aspects on your mm-hmm. palette, right? To your nose too. So, and have you ever let uh, Japanese shochu experts or producers taste your spirit?
1: Yeah. So uh, for one, the individual, but um, I mentioned earlier, um, as a a Japanese American that works with our distributor. And he was the one that I was saying, he, uh, he comes from a sake brewing family in Japan. Um, we engaged him really early on. I mean, this was probably two years ago before we had even released product into the market and, you know, really confided in him. Um, and you know, the, the response that we got back from him was very positive. And he shared it with, a lot of the bars and restaurants that he covers in Atlanta um, and introduced us to a lot of people um, in the, in the Japanese scene and, you know, got very positive um, responses from them as well. But to my knowledge, you know, the Christopher Pellegrini and Stephen Lyman, the two guys that you had uh, on your show a little while back, you know, we shared it with those guys. They actually took a bottle back with them to Japan, they really enjoyed it. Um, from what I've heard, we've actually had a bottle that has shown up in Singapore. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the the reactions that we've kind of that we've got really from, you know, traditional Western-based drinkers versus, you know, people that are more familiar with Japanese and Asian spirits in particular. I mean, we've gotten positive responses from
2: both. Mm, but I I really totally trust Christopher and Stevens yeah
1: i'll add i mean those guys have been great i mean you know they've been extremely supportive and helpful and on top of that i mean yeah they're extremely knowledgeable about sochu and those guys i mean we're kind of coming at it from a different angle as, as them but I, I think we're like-minded in the fact that we're trying to promote all things koji you know we want to support Other shochu uh, producers that are out there, we definitely like to see the category grow here in the United States. I mean, we think that, you know, alcohol that's made with koji is superior and just, you know, we're strongly aligned with it.
2: Mm, Right. I mean, to me, you just cracked the open of the door to developing um, some shochu based products. I mean, mm-hmm. they're really great sake breweries now in America, but I think you kind of started something interesting. That's my impression.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, we're starting to see it really pick up. I mean, Christopher and Stephen are doing a great job getting out there and educating people about the category. But you just you, you see it kind of here, there, and everywhere. It's in the trade magazines, um, the artisan spirit. You know, I, I follow those guys and. They've done numerous articles uh, in the last year where, I mean, they've dedicated several issues just to the discussion about sake and then just to the discussion about shochu. Um, So we're seeing it more and more, and, you know, it it definitely aligns well with the growth that we've seen in Japanese whiskey. Um, You know, in the last decade, people have seen Japanese whiskey really take off, and I think people are starting to really take a, a notice of, you know, more than just whiskey coming out of Japan. And, you know, we'd love it if shochu continued to grow up. Mm. Um, we think that there's, you know, that's a very, very deep category that has really yet to be explored by a lot of people.
2: Right. Okay. So what are your plans and dreams?
1: Yeah. So for us, um, you know, as I wouldn't say it's necessarily difficult. It's certainly been tough to get to where we are today, but it's, it's also been hard to kind of to to produce this stuff um, because we're having to work in a facility with a guy that has been, you know, gracious enough to let us work with him to produce our spirits in his facility. Um, But we'd like to have our own home. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't, find as much of the equipment that traditional shochu's are making and so we're having to do things with equipment that's more suited to making whiskey than you know steaming 800 pounds of rice so we'd love to have our own home and to have our own distillery in fact that's something that uh, we're going to embark on this year I'd, i'd love to say that we'd have something launched um in 2023, time will tell on that, but uh, it is our primary goal right now to find a way to get out there to have our own distillery and really showcase, I mean, everything that we're doing. I mean, we've we've had a lot of people that have asked, you know, what does it look like when you're, you know, propagating and growing koji mold? And what do these fermentations smell and look like? And, you know, what, what all does a single distillation process entail? And so we've just had A lot of people inquire about it and we'd love to be able to kind of show this stuff off to people because you know for the most part people have never seen it so as as far as the future outlook and our dreams i mean that's that's a big one for us is we'd like to be able to have our own home and be able to showcase what we're doing for everybody to see
2: awesome so well keep me posted we can discuss it again maybe on the show sometime when it happens so and where can we find you online and on social media
1: yeah, so our website is www.horizonspirits.com, and Horizon is H-O-R-Y-Z-O-N. Uh, we are at uh, Horizon Spirits for Instagram, and they are also on Facebook. Um, and just kind of a, a quick, you know, nod to what we're doing. what you know, people ask, well, why do you spell Horizon with a Y? Um, for one. Everything, obviously, that we're doing kind of like ties back into rice. And if you look at the Latin root for rice, it's oryza, so O-R-Y-Z-A. And you'll see on our label, and there's kind of a, a little icon of a bird's head that you'll see on our, our on the label also, but also on our, our website. Um, and the bird is a bobolink and the Latin name for the bobolink is oryza vorish, which literally translates into eats or devours rice. But the bobolink is this notorious bird that migrates through the southeastern United States. And we think it's a fun little mascot, but you talk to farmers about it and they can't stand it because it just decimates rice (laughs) fields. I mean, they'll, they'll have it move through there in the fall, kind of like right before the harvest. And it can eat thousands of pounds of rice in a day. I mean, not an individual bird, but flocks of birds can eat thousands of pounds of rice in a day. And so it's it's kind of fun for us, but obnoxious for others. But, um, you know, horizon, I mean, that's also kind of a nod just to the Japanese as well. I mean, the, the bird, our emblem is looking to the East and, you know, that's, that's in reverence to the fact that look, I mean, you know, we, we're definitely creating something new here, but at the same time, I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of giants as far as what the Japanese have done really in the last 500 years, um, to create this category and as wide ranging as it is. So,
2: Right. Well, I'm glad to hear the origin of the name and the label mm-hmm. because the label is very really beautiful too. So, great. Right. All right. So, good luck and uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Bit.
1: All right. Well, thank you as well, and I appreciate it.
2: All right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritagevideonetwork.org or akikotayama.com. Japanese is, is a weekly program and always available at heritagevideonetwork.org as well on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spanjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. <makes noise> Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.